And Father, as we now prepare ourselves to come to your word, we ask, Lord, that you would use this time to strengthen us, to edify us, perhaps to correct us, perhaps to comfort us. Lord, you know each one of our individual needs, and we believe that your word is sufficient for all of the things that we need. And so, Lord, we ask that you would meet us where we are, each one of us individually. We ask that we would hear the voice of our good shepherd calling to us by name, that we would follow him faithfully by grace through faith in him, and that he would be glorified in this. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to the book of 1 Samuel. We'll be continuing our study in 1 Samuel today, looking at chapter 2, verses 27 to 36, as we will be uh, finishing up chapter 2 in our study of Samuel today. And this has been a great study so far. Even these first two chapters, I don't know if you've noticed, but it has been already just tremendously deep. What we've seen is that there are only two ways of looking at the world. Have you ever thought about that? There, there are only two ways of perceiving the world. There's a biblical way of looking at the world, and then there is a secular, non-biblical way of looking at the world. And both of these worldviews, if you will, are completely opposed to one another. And they're so opposed to one another, you might even say that they are uh, at war with one another. They clash with one another. And we've seen these two different ways of looking at the world very clearly illustrated so far in our text. Uh, in just the first couple chapters of the books of First and Second Samuel, we were almost immediately exposed to the biblical worldview. And that is the view that we see Hannah uh, having. We're almost immediately exposed to Hannah's way of looking at the world. And there's no question about it that her way of looking at the world, her worldview, was entirely in line with the biblical worldview. She believed that God is who the Bible says He is. And so, when she had a desire, when she had a need... She prayed to God. She knew that God had heard her, and she trusted that God could answer her prayer. And of course, we saw that in the way that she went to God and prayed for a son uh, back in chapter 1. But then we got to the second chapter, and we see this, this song or this poem or this psalm that she had written, and she recites it. And it's centered on all these different aspects of who God is, of of God's character, His power, His knowledge, His righteous judgment. Uh, She also clearly believed that God is sovereign, that He has power to turn the wealthy into beggars, uh, the, the powerful into weaklings, and that He will judge every unrighteous deed, and will do so justly. But because Hannah had this view of God, the biblical view of God, she lived her life accordingly. In a way, that is, she lived her life in a way that honored God. 
She walked by faith, and she responded to things like suffering by going to God in prayer. Her response to answered prayer was thanksgiving and praise. And she taught her children, as we have clearly seen in the case of Samuel, to live their lives in light of the same reality of who God is. The the correct way of looking at God results in us looking at the world in the correct way as well. Not to mention seeing ourselves the right way. But then there is the secular worldview, the unbiblical worldview, which we have clearly, clearly seen illustrated in the sons of Eli, uh, Hophni and and Phinehas. Of course, Eli was the priest at the, uh, the tabernacle in Shiloh, and you would expect that his sons would also be godly men as they served in the tabernacle, but that was obviously not the case. Hophni and Phinehas seem to have had no awareness of who God is. They seem to have had no awareness of the judgment that Hannah talked about in her psalm that awaits the wicked who live their lives in constant rebellion toward God. And so instead of living their lives in light of who God is, they live their lives in light of lesser gods. In, in light of, of idols of their own making. They weren't slaves or, or servants of the Lord as the tabernacle priests uh, should have been. Instead, they were slaves to greed. They were slaves to gluttony. They, unlike Hannah, dishonored the Lord. So Hophni and Phinehas were entirely characteristic of the natural, unregenerate person in that they wanted all the the good things that this life has to offer, but they didn't want the God who is the giver of every good gift. They had no desire to enjoy the good gifts of God in the context for which they were designed either, which is exactly why they would fornicate or, or, or rape the women who came to the tabernacle. And all of this was founded on one thing about them. It it all starts with one thing about them. As we read in chapter 2, verse 12, back in verse 12, they did not know the Lord. And so it was no surprise, it's no wonder then, that they dishonored Him. And it's no wonder that Israel was spiritually barren back in those days. Not only were two of the priests who were serving at the tabernacle just absolutely corrupted to the core, about as corrupt as we can possibly imagine, but we saw that their father, Eli, even though he went to them, he did nothing to remedy the situation at the tabernacle with the people of Israel and his sons. Yeah, he went to them. Yes, he went to them and rebuked them and warned them. But nobody in their right mind would agree that what he did was entirely sufficient. He wasn't responsible for their sins. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that he did have a responsibility to remove his sons from their positions. And he is responsible for that. 
Now, based on what we know about his sons, Eli may have just feared that if he did something, if he went to them and not only warned them uh, and rebuked them, but if he actually removed them, that they would commit some violent act against him. Uh, We saw that they were threatening violence to anyone who came to the tabernacle who was a little bit hesitant to to give them what they were asking for. So that very well may have been the case. He may have been uh, afraid for his life. Okay, but while that might explain why, why he didn't do anything to remedy the situation, it doesn't excuse it. There's a huge difference between an explanation and an excuse. So, Two ways of looking at the world, the biblical way and the secular way. But Eli shows us that there's actually kind of a third way that's just as bad, if not worse, than the secular way. Eli's view of the world was somewhat syncretized. What that means is that he mixed the two worldviews, which is almost the same as having a secular worldview, except he should have known better, because he should have known who God was and acted accordingly. So it might actually be the worst of the three options, the worst of the three ways of looking at the world, and this third option also dishonors God. But friends, if we know anything about God, we have to know this. We have to know that God will not be mocked. God should not be taken lightly because God will not be mocked. Eli had no excuse for not doing something about his sons. And if he didn't do anything because he was afraid of them retaliating, then he was guilty of it. You can't have it both ways. You can't fear man and fear God. You just can't do both. You either walk in the light or you walk in the darkness. But when you combine the the biblical worldview with the, the secular worldview, you end up with the spiritual equivalent of mixing fresh drinkable water uh, with dirty toilet water and so the end product is still disgusting it's still dirty toilet water it still dishonors God and it actually might be the most offensive position of all because again he should know better he should know better and so if he knows better he should do better but God has been patient with Eli That much is very apparent. He's been patient not only with Eli, but with his sons. But God's patience with sinners is never promised for tomorrow. Remember that. God's promise of of patience is never for tomorrow. You've got right now. You don't have the guarantee of five minutes from now. There always comes a time when God will act to right the wrongs that He has patiently Endured, And thus, friends, it's important that we be a people who humbly honor and serve the Lord in our lives because God Himself says, as we'll see in our passage today, those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. That's the point of our passage today. God honors those who honor Him. So Eli has rebuked his sons, he has warned his sons, but he has not done anything to remedy the situation. He hasn't removed them to correct the sins that they were committing, both against the people of the Lord and against the Lord himself. Our text today picks up then right where we left off. We're in verse 27. Let's look at verses 27 and 28. It says, Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, did I not indeed reveal myself to 
the house of your father when they were in Egypt in bondage to Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose them from all the tribes of Israel to be my priests, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to carry an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the fire offerings of the sons of Israel? See, because the godless, the secular, unbiblical view of God is, uh, is, is so prevalent, the same view that Hophni and Phinehas had. It's so prevalent in our day and age. We would be very wise to consider what God has to say in these verses. And even more important than that is that we see that the, uh, the way that Hannah saw the world, we, we see that the way that she saw the world as opposed to the way that the sons of Eli saw the world, there's a huge difference. And that we choose ourselves to see the world as Hannah saw the world. But after rebuking and not disciplining his sons, Eli gets a visit. And we don't know who it's even by. We, we actually have no idea. We don't have a name for this person. He's simply referred to as a man of God. In other words, this is a prophet. This is somebody who's going to speak for God. And while we don't know exactly who he was, the truth is, we know what God wants us to know. God tells us what we need to know. And so if He doesn't tell us something, it's not something that we need to know. So we don't need to know who this man of God is. What we need to know is what He said. And we see here that He prefaces His message kind of, kind of ominously uh, with, with the words, "...thus says the Lord." That's prophetic language. That's clearly very prophetic language. And whenever we see these words in Scripture, thus saith the Lord, or thus says the Lord, you can guarantee that it's going to be something that is very God of knowledge. These are the words of the same God that Hannah described earlier as a God of knowledge. The God who weighs all actions. The God who is sovereign over all. Who gives life. Who takes life. And who will judge the ends of the earth. So what is this message that this man of God had for Eli? First, the Lord reminds Eli of what he had done for Eli and his house in the past. Then he goes on to establish his awareness of what's going on in the present with both Eli and his sons and the sins that they were all guilty of. And finally, he will tell Eli what the consequences of Eli's actions, or really lack thereof, will be. So, that's how this whole text breaks down. We'll start with what God did in the past. That's what we see here in verses 27 and 28. He says that He revealed Himself to the house of Eli's father when they were in Egypt in bondage to Pharaoh's house. Now that is a reference to, obviously, uh, the days of Israel being in Egypt. It's a reference to Aaron and his sons. Because we really don't know much about Eli. We don't know much about his background, at least at this point. But we know that Aaron and his sons were assigned the, the privilege, um, Eli's high responsibility, of serving in the priesthood. Um, Eli's great-grandson will be a character later on in the story. Uh, he's also mentioned in 1 Chronicles 24, verse 3, where we learn that he's one of the sons of Ithamar. 
who was Aaron's fourth son. Uh, But the role of chief priest went to uh, Aaron's third son, who was named Eleazar. Uh, It didn't go to Ithamar. Eleazar was, was Aaron's third son. Ithamar was his fourth. Aaron's first two sons were... Nadab and Abihu, uh, if you know anything about them, if you know why we believe that God has to be the one to tell us how to worship, part of it has to do with what happened to Nadab and Abihu. Their lives were taken by God for offering him uh, a type of worship that he did not prescribe, uh, which tells us that we want to worship in the way that God tells us to worship. Uh, They brought strange fire before the altar, and so the Lord took their lives. So, How did Eli end up being the chief priest uh, since he was in the line of the fourth son, not the third son? And the answer is, we have no idea. Nobody is exactly clear on on that. But I mean, maybe he uh, had connections to both lines. And because he had some connections to both lines, he was the one chosen for responsibility. It's also possible that there was not a male who was of age to serve as the chief priest in uh, in Eleazar's line, so, um, so Eli was the, the next best option. Whatever the case, the point is that God revealed himself to Aaron and called Aaron and his sons to serve this man as priests. Now we see the second thing that God had done in verse 28, as this man of God rhetorically asks, Did I not choose them from all the tribes of Israel to be my priests? to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to carry an ephod before me. God not only chose Israel to be his people, but he also chose the family whose males would serve him in the tabernacle or, or later on in, the, in the, uh, the temple as priests. But they had three primary responsibilities in their priesthood that get outlined here. First, go up to my altar. Uh, This entailed bringing the sacrifices that were offered by the people before the Lord as a means of cleansing and as a means of atonement for sins. Uh, Secondly, they were to burn incense. Uh, That referred to the priest's ministry of intercessory prayer on behalf of the people, which was to be done twice a day. Uh, The smoke from the incense and the aroma of the incense was supposed to be kind of a visual representation, a visual illustration of the prayers going up to heaven and and filling uh, God's chambers. Uh, Third, the priests were to carry or to wear a linen ephod before God. Uh, This wasn't the linen uh, linen ephod that was worn by ordinary priests, like what we saw Samuel uh, was wearing. No, this ephod was worn by the high priest, and it had two onyx stones with the names of all 12 tribes of Israel engraved on them, which symbolized the fact that the high priest really represented uh, those 12 tribes. He, He was the one who stood between the tribes of Israel and God as a representative of all of God's people. The third thing, did I not give to the house of your father all the fire offerings of the sons of Israel? This is a reference to the fact that God had uh, assigned a portion of the sacrifices to be given to the priests as a way of, uh, of, of giving them something to eat, of providing for them, ensuring that the priests were generally, uh, generously provided for. So all of these privileges, all these responsibilities 
were Eli's. He was to oversee all of these things, and he was to do all of these things. And this summarizes God's actions in the past. This summarizes the way that he had, uh, had blessed the family line of which Eli and his sons were a part. But now he moves to the present and his awareness of what Eli and his sons had done as his representatives before men. In verse 30, let's look at verse 30. He says, Therefore the Lord God of Israel declares, I did indeed say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Now we had seen earlier on in the chapter that Hophni and Phinehas had despised the Lord's offering by the way that they had fleeced the flock. They had taken more than the portion that they were to take, and in fact, far more than the portion that they were supposed to take. And so God asks Eli the rhetorical question. He's, he's not expecting Eli to, to answer. The question is there to let Eli know that he doesn't need to answer, that God is fully aware of what he has done. He says, why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering which I have commanded in my dwelling. It's an interesting way of saying it, that they, that they kicked at the offering, that he kicked at the offering. Now we need to understand that in that culture, in this ancient culture, to show the bottom of someone's foot, to show the bottom of your foot to somebody else in that ancient culture was the absolute lowest or, or highest insult, depending on how you want to word it. It's the worst insult that you could give somebody is to show them the bottom of your foot. So when God says that Eli kicked at God's sacrifice, at his offering, he's saying that Eli has shown the greatest disregard, the highest contempt that a person can show, not only toward those offerings, but toward God himself. The actions of Eli's sons were driven by the sentiment that God has that were designated for the priests. The sons of Aaron in the portion of the sacrifices that were designated for the priests. So these guys weren't content with what God had given them. And we know that one of the Ten Commandments is that we shall not covet. So they were at least guilty of that. They coveted. The problem with coveting is that it's saying, God, what you're giving me isn't enough. I need more. I need more. You're not sufficient. That's a horrible, sinful attitude to have toward God and the blessings, the good gifts that he gives to us. But all of these previously mentioned responsibilities had, had fallen on Eli, and with that much responsibility, there's a, there's a lot on the line. It comes, with those responsibilities comes the, the obligation to rightly honor the Lord, which Eli's sons clearly had not done, and Eli himself had clearly not done. Now that's not to say that Eli, again, was responsible for the, sons of, uh, the sins of his sons. He's not, but he was guilty of his own sin. No, they, they were responsible for their own sins, but Eli was responsible for allowing them to continue committing the sins that they were committing on his behalf, as they served on his behalf before the people, when he should have at least removed them from their positions. 
And so with that said, these words, which reminded Eli of what God had done in the past, uh, actually served to set the stage for the terrible indictment that the Lord is now issuing against Eli for his utter failure to faithfully carry out these sacred duties. The fact is that Eli had also dishonored God by honoring his sons. His sons had dishonored God, of course, that's obvious. But what God is saying here in this passage is that they weren't the only ones. Eli was also dishonoring God. More highly, he was honoring his sons than he was God. He, he knew what his sons were doing. And because they were his sons, he did nothing. So how did he honor his sons? By keeping them in place. Even though he knew, he knew what they were doing. He knew that they were stealing from God. He knew that they were showing contempt for God. He knew that they were even exalting themselves over God in performing their duties. And Eli should have done something about it. That responsibility was entirely his, but he didn't. Either because he honored sinful man over God or because he feared sinful man over God and thus honored them. Either way, neither one of those options is a valid excuse in God's courts. There are no excuses for dishonoring God. What an indictment. You honor your sons above me. How many of you would tremble to hear God say that to you? We should. I have to imagine that at this point, Eli starts to realize, oh, I'm in trouble. I imagine his knees started to tremble at this point. Worst thing, a worse indictment that he could have faced. Parents, I want you to know that I want you and I encourage you to love and to disciple your children well. You know that. But you must know that I will never, ever desire that you would honor anything, including your children, above God. Now, is it possible for us in our modern context to do that? Absolutely, it's possible. In fact, there are churches out there that count on the fact that parents do that. Uh, several years ago, when I was still in seminary, my wife and I visited one of these very seeker-friendly churches uh, that was growing by leaps and bounds. Articles were being written about them. They were being featured on the local news. And so we decided to go and, and check it out and see what all the hype was about. And when we went there, um, they had this enormous program for kids during the church service. Uh, they had video games set up for the kids to play during the service. They had a big dance floor. They had loud music and flashing lights. Every activity that kids would absolutely enjoy and, and absolutely love. Activities that the kids would want to come back next week for. And why did they have this elaborate setup? Because they knew that if their kids had fun, they knew that if the kids enjoyed their time in there, the parents would come back, even if they weren't completely happy or completely comfortable with the church, which was lukewarm, by the way, if not entirely apostate. In other words, this church and, and so many churches that do the same thing were counting on parents honoring their children over honoring God. Never honor anyone, including your own children, 
above God. This is why God sends his man of God, his messenger to Eli, instead of sending the man of God to deal directly with Phineas and Hophni, because Eli had the responsibility of overseeing them. It's because Eli was guilty of a sin that was actually just as horrible as the sins that his sons were committing. He was at least enabling them. As Hannah noted in her psalm, God is a God of knowledge. And so we know that He knows it all. He sees it all. Nothing escapes His notice. No sin escapes His sight. He weighs all actions accurately and justly. And so first the Lord reminded Eli of what he had done for Eli and his house, the the family of Aaron, in the past. Then secondly, he established his awareness of not only Hophni and Phinehas' sin, but of Eli's sin. And now third and finally, he tells Eli what the consequences of Eli's inaction will be. Let's look at verses 31 to 34. It says, Behold, the days are coming when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. You will see the distress of my dwelling in spite of all the good that I do for Israel, and an old man will not be in your house forever. Yet I will not cut off every man of yours from my altar so that your eyes will fail from weeping and your soul grieve, and all the increase of your house will die in the prime of life. This will be the sign to you which will come concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. On the same day, both of them will die. That's heavy. But what it tells us, what it reminds us of, friends, is that there is no such thing as a sin that is without consequence. Every sin has consequences. Now, some of those consequences are going to just be temporal. For example, if you steal, you might get thrown in jail. That's a temporal consequence for sin. But some of them, some sins might seem, might feel, might look on the surface as though they are inconsequential. But the fact is that all sin has consequences, either in this life or in the next. Therefore, is how this section begins. Again, an ominous word that connects Eli's sin, his present sin, to the consequences that Eli is going to have to face for his failure to remove his sons from their positions and from their duties. So God has uh, made this promise back in Exodus 29.9 where He said of Aaron and his sons, He said, They shall have the priesthood by a perpetual state. In other words, it will be ongoing. It will just keep on going. This belongs only in the family of Aaron. The promise that God has has made was given only to Aaron and his sons. It was repeated by Aaron's grandson Phinehas, a different Phinehas, back in Numbers 25 verses 12 and 13, where God had reaffirmed this promise of perpetual priesthood by saying this. He said, Behold, I give him my covenant of peace, and it shall be for him and his descendants after him a covenant of perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. The promise was that the sons of Aaron would have this perpetual priesthood. And Eli had been a man who was blessed to have inherited 
this promise, this sacred promise, and to have been elevated to uh, the position of chief priest in Israel. But the promise wasn't specifically to Eli and his household. They had inherited it, but it wasn't made only to them. It was to Aaron's descendants. So it wasn't that God is breaking his promise or going back on what he had vowed earlier here, but Eli's family would be removed from their role by God himself since Eli would not personally remove his sons. Because he would not do it, God is going to be the one to do it. And you know that that can't be good. Those who honor me I will honor, says the Lord. And those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Listen, it is no small thing to be lightly esteemed by the Lord. It sounds like it's not that big of a deal. But when you consider what he has just told Eli of what will happen, it is very clear that to be lightly esteemed by God is no small thing. I will honor those who honor me, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. And Eli had despised the Lord, whether he realized it or not. Now we might say that it doesn't look like he despised the Lord because he wasn't doing these things. But to dishonor the Lord is to despise Him. That's part of the point that gets drawn together here. And the consequence was that his line, his house, would have this privilege of serving in this perpetual priesthood of uh, Aaronic uh, priests removed. And it wasn't that the sons of of Aaron would not still have this promise. They would, but Eli and his house would not continue to have this privilege. So let's understand, friends, that to honor anyone or anything above God is to despise the Lord. Now let's plug that principle into the principle that we saw actually at the beginning of our previous lesson, that God has ordained three institutions of human authority in the world, the church, the family, and the government. And nobody in any position of authority in any of those three institutions has the right to instruct you or to order you to disobey God nor do they have the right to prevent you from doing what God has instructed. Wives, for example, you are instructed to submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ, right? Yeah, according to Ephesians 5.24, yes, the answer is yes. But if your husband were to instruct you, if he were to demand that you disobey God, or if he were to prevent you from doing what God has instructed... To disobey God is to dishonor Him. You must honor and obey God over what your husband has demanded of you. Uh, Likewise, children, kids, talking to you guys, those of you who uh, we, we refer to lovingly as our littles. How many of you little ones know that you're supposed to honor your mother and father? You know that, right? That's one of the Ten Commandments, right? We, we know that. But that will never include doing something that God has not instructed. They never have the authority to tell you to do something that God forbids, that God says don't do. They, they don't have the right to tell you to steal or to, uh, to murder or to <laughs> any of those things. They don't have the right to. Why? Because God has forbidden these things. So even if your parents 
tell you to do these things, tell you to do anything that God's word forbids, you can't do it because you have to honor God above even your parents. And how do you know what God has told us to do or not to do? And the answer to that, kids, is know the word of God. Know what the scriptures say by reading and knowing and studying and memorizing God's word. And of course, so the same principle applies with all areas of authority. We must honor God above man. We must honor God above anything and everything. And nobody has the right to insist that we not honor God or that we honor someone or something else above God. That's the lesson from Daniel's three friends who refused to bow to the golden image of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 3. If they had bowed before the image like everyone else did, then they too would have been guilty of this sin of honoring somebody else above God. The priesthood of Aaron's sons would be perpetual. It would continue, but not in Eli's house. This present generation would actually be destroyed by God. Look at what God says in verse 31. He says, I will break your strength, talking to Eli. I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Verse 32, you will see the distress of my dwelling, talking about the tabernacle, in spite of all the good that I do for Israel, and an old man will not be in your house forever. And then he promises that Eli will see his own sons die on the same day. Eli's house, Eli's line, would face absolute devastation. And we'll see the first consequence actually fulfilled in chapter 4, where Hophni and Phinehas will be killed by the Philistines when Israel goes out to battle and decides that it would be a good idea to take the Ark of the Covenant with them, only to be uh, utterly slaughtered by the Philistines and the Ark of the Covenant gets stolen. So when the news gets to Eli, he'll be so distraught that the Ark of the Covenant was taken by the Philistines that he will fall over in his chair and break his neck as he falls and he will die. But that fulfillment of God's vow here is only the beginning. When we get to chapter 22, that's where we'll see that there's a terrible massacre of the priests with only one survivor, that being Eli's great-great-grandson, Abiathar. All this can be traced back to one simple principle. All these consequences, it goes back to this same principle. Those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Again, it is not a small thing to be lightly esteemed by God. While the world honors its own heroes who give their lives to worldly, secular causes. The Lord honors those who honor Him above everything else. For those who dishonor God, those who despise Him, which is the only alternative to honoring Him, by the way. There comes a day of reckoning when a person's name will be cast down into the mud. And we've unfortunately seen that happen in Christendom in recent years. Many of you will remember a man by the name of Ravi Zacharias. He was recognized as this faithful defender of the Christian faith, but after he died, he got exposed. It was revealed that he had been a very, very corrupt man who lived in 
unrepentant sin his entire life. His life was secretly marked by him being an adulterer who was guilty of sexual misconduct and or abuse in both his business and in his personal life. Uh, I, I won't go into all the details. We don't all need to hear those or rehash them. But his own ministry was forced to confess after his death that he had been guilty of these types of crimes with at least 200 women over the years. His Wikipedia page says this. It says, according to investigators, Zacharias also used thousands of dollars of ministry funds which had been dedicated to a humanitarian effort to pay for massage therapists, providing them with housing, schooling, and monthly support for extended periods of time. End quote. Ravi Zacharias, sadly, is an example of somebody who did not honor the Lord. In fact, he despised the Lord. And the time came when the Lord cast his name down in the mud. And his legacy was publicly, very publicly shattered. Why? Because the Lord will not be lightly esteemed by his servants. Because Ravi lightly esteemed God, God lightly esteemed him. The day of his reckoning came and God will not be mocked. He's a God of knowledge who rightly weighs every action, every thought, word, and deed. It is no small thing to be lightly esteemed by God. You see, friends, the the grace of God is never, ever a license to sin. The, The awareness of His forgiveness does not enable out of the darkness and into His marvelous light, calling all who receive His grace to walk by grace, to walk in the light as He is in the light. It calls us, as we read in Titus chapter 2, verse 12, to deny ungodliness and world desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Can we say that of Ravi Zacharias knowing what we know now about him? We can say no, he absolutely did not do those things. No, God's grace does not enable us to sin freely. Rather, it enables us to be freed from sinful inclinations. The call to us here in our text is to honor God. And not only to honor God, but to honor God above everyone and everything else in our lives. There's a great example, a great illustration of this that's seen in the life of a man named Eric Liddell. How many of you guys have seen Chariots of Fire? I think it was movie of the year in 1984, somewhere around there, early 80s. It was was a great movie, but it was about Eric Liddell and his story. Uh, He was born in China by Christian missionary parents, Uh, from Scotland. In his early years, he attended a boarding school outside of London, and during those years, he became an outstanding athlete. And so while he went on to attend the University of Edinburgh, uh, he excelled in running and was chosen to represent Great Britain in the 1924 Summer Olympics in Paris. Uh, He had trained for and he was expected to win the gold easily in the 100-meter race. But then it was announced that that race was going to be held. If you've seen the movie, you know how it goes. The, the, the race was going to be held on a Sunday. And 
Liddell, being a Christian man, was convinced that the Scriptures forbade him from participating in a race on the Lord's Day. And so he refused to run the race. And he held the line. He held his ground. He didn't back down. But what I want you to see is that he chose to honor the Lord above anything and above everything else, despite nationwide, if not worldwide, pressure for him to violate his religious convictions. He didn't. He held the line. He stayed true to the Lord, honoring the Lord above man, and even honoring the Lord above this medal that he had spent years training to win, and which was sure to be his. So instead, he decided to run the 400-meter race, which was held on a Friday. Now, he had not really thoroughly trained for the 400-meter race. Uh, His training time uh, for what he did train was absolutely not spectacular at all. It was maybe even subpar. But on the morning of that race, just prior to the race, one of the team officials came up to him and handed him a folded square of paper that said, He that honors me, I will honor wishing you the best of success always. And so Liddell read it. He crumpled it up in his hand and ran with it, not only exceeding his own best training times, but winning the race, and not only winning the race and winning the gold, but shattering the world record at the time. Now this opened up, if you you know how the Olympics work uh, and, and the kind of public press that somebody like that gets, it opened up all kinds of opportunities for Liddell to cash in on all of his glory and fame across Great Britain. But instead, he humbly returned to China to serve the Lord as a missionary for the rest of his days. He had honored God above anything and everything else. And God honored him as well. And God honored his name, preserving his legacy. If only Eli had had the same fortitude to hold the line. If only Eli had honored God above man. None of these consequences that we've read about today would have been there. But God's judgment against Eli's household would not be God's final word in this matter. God's plans and purposes will not be thwarted by man's failures. Tomorrow is secure. Next year is secure. The future is secure. It's all held in God's hand. He's the one who's sovereign, and He has the sovereign right to remove the lamp, if you will, from Revelation of those who are unfaithful in their service unto Him. And He has the right to raise up somebody else. And so therefore, His grace would overcome. His plans would not be thwarted by the wicked deeds of human hands. And thus, God's last word that we see here in this terrible, sad situation would actually be one of grace and hope. Let's look at verses 35 and 36. He says, But I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my soul. And I will build him an enduring house, and he will walk before my anointed always. Everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and say, please assign me to one of the priest's offices so that I may eat a piece of bread. 
Who is this faithful? Let's understand this much. Let's understand someone happening in the future or being raised up in the future that might have multiple fulfillments. So there might be one sense in which it's one person and a second sense in which it's somebody else. So Samuel will eventually uh, take over the functions of the priests. We know that, although Samuel actually turns out to be more of a, of a prophet than a priest. Uh, but he will do what is uh, according to God's heart and soul, what's pleasing and honoring to, to God's heart and soul. But this prophecy actually seems to appear more specifically, or apply more specifically to a man named Zadok uh, from another family in the line of Aaron who would serve as priest under Solomon's kingship. Uh, one of Solomon's first acts when he uh, is, is uh, instituted as Israel's king will be to kick a man named Abiathar, out of the priesthood. And this will conclude um, God's punishment against the house of Eli. First Kings chapter 2, verse 27 uh, says this, Priest to the Lord, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord which he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. But when we consider the roles and the responsibilities that the priests of Israel had, we should always realize that they were all ultimately foreshadows. They were all ultimately pointing to a greater priest, a greater prophet, a greater king who would truly perform all these duties of the priests on behalf of his people. As the priest was to go up to the altar presenting the atoning sacrifices of the people for sin, Jesus presented himself. He laid his own life down. He made the once and for all atonement, uh, atoning offering for sin by offering up himself, covering our sins by the shedding of his blood and cleansing us of sin. As the priests would burn incense representing their uh, intercessory ministry on behalf of the people of God, Jesus, who was fully God, took on flesh in order that he may sympathize with our weakness and in order that he would be the one and only mediator who stands between God and man. Hebrews 7.25 tells us that he continues to make intercession for us on our behalf to the Father. And just as the high priest was to wear an ephod with the names of the twelve tribes of Israel inscribed on the stones, Isaiah 49.16 tells us that the names of all of God's people are engraved on Christ's hands as He represents us before God, as He secures our position before God in Him. God sent Jesus to be a faithful high priest for all of His people, for all who would believe on him friends if you want to make a difference in the world if you want to make a difference for the lord you must honor him above everything and everyone else because where god is honored god will bless where god is not honored his blessing cannot be expected do you want your homes to be blessed? Of course you do. You want your homes to be blessed. Do you want your kids to be blessed? Of course you do. You want your kids to be blessed. Do you want your workplace to be blessed? Our church to be blessed? Then God must be honored above all in those places and in those relationships. It's better for us as a church to be hated by the world but honored by God than it is to be loved by the world but 
lightly esteemed by God for not honoring him above all. Those who honor God will be honored by God. And so to that end, we must have the biblical view of God. We must have the right view of God. That's because the view of God that that, that lines up with what the Bible says about God is the view of God that leads a person to honor God and to serve Him well. It's when we lose sight of who He is, who the Bible reveals Him to be, that we fall into sin and that we honor something or someone else above Him and thus dishonor Him. But wherever you are right now, God's grace is sufficient. Maybe as you've been listening, you're thinking, I think I've prioritized something over God in my life. What am I supposed to do? God's grace is sufficient. And He promises that if we confess our sins, He is righteous and just to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You might have failed Him yesterday. You might have even failed Him this morning. But what are you doing with that right now? Cast aside previous failures. Cast aside yesterday's idols and resolve to live and to honor and to glorify God from this day forth, regardless of what it might cost you. Yes, there will be a cost, but the cost of not doing it is far greater. And remember that God will never, if you are in Christ, that God will never esteem you lightly because God will never esteem His own Son lightly. And if you are in Christ, when He looks at you, He sees Christ's perfect righteousness. And thus we, as children of God, as as those who believe in Christ, God will never, ever lightly esteem us. Instead, He will discipline us. But as a Father who loves us, not as a, a God who is pouring out His wrath on us. And so may we therefore honor and serve the Lord faithfully. And without fear, knowing that he'll be both pleased and glorified and honored by that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we can only stand humbly before you in light of who you are. And our passage reminds us that you are a God who loves righteousness, but rightfully hates sin, and will not stand for sin in the lives of your servants. And so we thank you, Lord, for times and seasons of discipline in our lives, those things that remind us that you are a Father who loves us, who desires not only to forgive us of sin, but to turn us from it. And so we ask, Lord, that you would help us to turn from the sin in our lives. Lord, search our hearts. Open our hearts and search them. Let us know if there is anything that we are honoring above you. Make it be known to us that we may repent and grant us, Lord, the grace to repent, to repent in a way that leads to life and not death. Oh God, you are worthy of all praise, honor, and glory. And we can only confess that we have failed to give you all the praise, honor, and glory that you are due. But Jesus, our mediator, didn't. And by your grace, you sent him 
to die in our place, that we may stand before you as sons who are loved rather than as rebels who are lightly esteemed. We thank you for your grace and we pray that it would continue to transform us into Christ's likeness. Our desire is to be like him for the glory of his name. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.